Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. So, this place is beautiful, but I still just get the heebie-jeebies. Oh, come on. It's not that bad. Oh, yes it is. Take your pick. We are on an island where the only escape is a single subway station, a single sky tram station, or a single bridge for which we don't have a car. On one end of the island is the remains of a smallpox hospital. On the other end is a former mental hospital, now converted to apartments. For all its beauty, Roosevelt Island just gives me the creeps, like it's hiding a secret or something. Come on now. Those things have been gone for decades now. This is just another neighborhood in New York. And they've done a great job developing it. Besides, at least you have exit options. It could be worse. Worse? Worse how? Well, we we could be out on Heart Island at the old abandoned asylum. You know, like the one from last night's show. No, 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 no. I'm having none of that. The only island I want to be on right now is the island of Manhattan. Okay, calm down. Let's at least go see the lighthouse before we go. Fine. But no more talk about asylums, okay? Okay, but I should mention the lighthouse we are seeing was built by the people who used to live in the former asylum here. I knew... I knew that. And I was hoping you just wouldn't bring it up. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the disturbing show, Macbeth. So, hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone, and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. And oftentimes, to win us to our harm, the instruments of darkness tell us truths, win us with honest trifles to betray us in deepest consequence. These were the words that were uttered in the already dark and violent show, Macbeth. But these words were made even more chilling in the reimagining of the staple of the theater, which shook audiences to their core. But before we can go any further, we must return to the beginning to lay the path before us. For this episode, we will be discussing the 2013 production of Macbeth. Set in a psychiatric unit, Alan Cumming plays a patient who is reliving the story of Macbeth bringing to life over 15 characters in Shakespeare's bloody work, which is performed without an intermission. It has a running time of one hour and 45 minutes. 
The new staging of Macbeth premiered at the National Theatre of Scotland in June 2012 and played a New York run um, at the Rose Theatre in July 2012. Let's go ahead and introduce our design team at this time. Playwright William Shakespeare, director John Tiffany and Andrew Goldberg, scenic and costume design Merle Hansel, Lighting design, Natasha Shivers. Sound design, Fergus O'Hare. Video design, Ian William Galway. Music by Max Richter. And movement by Christine Devaney. This interpretation arrived at the Barrymore Theater on April 21st, 2013, and played 73 performances closing July 14th, 2013. So let's delve into our story, for it, if it were done... When it tis done, then twere well it were done quickly. According to producers, Macbeth is set in a clinical room deep within a dark psychiatric unit. Coming is the lone patient, reliving the infamous story and inhabiting each role himself. Closed-circuit television cameras watch the patient's every move as the walls of the psychiatric ward come to life in a visually stunning multimedia theatrical experience of Shakespeare's notorious tale of desire, ambition, and the supernatural. In a decrepit hospital suite, we see two attendants approach a shaky Cummings and swab claw marks that streak across his chest. This is where the classic Shakespeare script takes over to be told to us by only coming. Amid thunder and lightning, three witches decide that their next meeting will be with Macbeth. A wounded sergeant reports to King Duncan of Scotland that his generals Banquo and Macbeth have just defeated the allied forces of Norway and Ireland. Macbeth, the king's kinsman, is praised for his bravery and fighting prowess. Macbeth and Banquo discuss the weather and their victory. As they wander onto a heath, the three witches enter and greet them with prophecies. They address Macbeth, hailing him that he will be king hereafter. Macbeth appears to be stunned to silence. When Banquo asks of his own fortunes, the witches respond paradoxically, saying that he will be less than Macbeth, yet happier, and less successful, yet more. He will father a line of kings, though he himself will not be one. The first of the witch's prophecy is fulfilled, and Macbeth, previously skeptical, immediately begins to harbor ambitions to become king. King Duncan praises Macbeth and Banquo, and Duncan declares that he will spend the night at Macbeth's castle in Iverness. Duncan also names his son Malcolm as his heir. Macbeth sends a message ahead to his wife, Lady Macbeth, telling her about the witch's prophecy. Lady Macbeth suffers none of her husband's uncertainty and wishes him to murder Duncan in order to obtain kingship. 
When Macbeth arrives at Iverness, she overrides all of her husband's objections by challenging his manhood and successfully persuades him to kill the king that very night. He and Lady Macbeth plan to get Duncan's two chamberlains drunk so that they will black out. The next morning, they will blame the chamberlains for the murder. Since the chamberlains would remember nothing whatsoever, they would be blamed for the deed. While Duncan is asleep, Macbeth stabs him. Despite his doubts and a number of supernatural portents, including a hallucination of a bloody dagger, he is so shaken that Lady Macbeth has to take charge. In accordance with her plan, she frames Duncan's sleeping servants for the murder by placing bloody daggers on them. Early the next morning, Lennox and Macduff arrive. Macbeth leads them to the king's chamber where Macduff discovers Duncan's body. Macbeth murders the guards to prevent them from professing their innocence, but claims he did so in a fit of anger over their misdeeds. Duncan's sons, Malcolm and Donalbane, flee to England and Ireland, fearing that whoever killed Duncan desires their demise as well. The rightful heir's flight makes them suspects, and Macbeth assumes the role as the new king of Scotland, as a kinsman of the dead king. Banquo reveals this to the audience, and while skeptical of the new King Macbeth, he remembers the witch's prophecy about how his own descendants would inherit the throne. This makes him suspicious of Macbeth. Despite his success, Macbeth, also aware of his part of the prophecy, remains uneasy. Macbeth invites Banquo to a royal banquet, where he discovers that Banquo and his young son Fleance will be riding out that night. Fearing Banquo's suspicions, Macbeth arranges to have him murdered by hiring two men to kill them, later sending a third murderer presumably to ensure that the deed is completed. Assassins succeed in killing Banquo, but Fleance escapes. Macbeth becomes furious. He, re- he fears that his power remains insecure as long as the heir of Banquo remains alive. At the banquet, Macbeth invites his lords and Lady Macbeth to a night of drinking and merriment. Banquo's ghost enters and sits in Macbeth's place. Macbeth raves fearfully, startling his guests as the ghost is visible only to him. The others panic at the sight of Macbeth raging at an empty chair until a desperate Lady Macbeth tells them that her husband is merely afflicted with a familiar and harmless malady. The ghost departs and returns once more, causing the same righteous anger and fear in Macbeth. This time, Lady Macbeth tells the visitors to leave, and they do so. At the end, Hecate scolds the three weird sisters for helping Macbeth, especially without consulting her. Hecate instructs the witches to give Macbeth false security. Macbeth, disturbed, visits the three witches once more and asks them to reveal the truth of their prophecies to him. To answer his questions, they summon horrible apparitions, each of which offers predictions and further prophecies to put Macbeth's fears at rest. First, they conjure an armored head, which tells him to beware of Macduff. Second, a bloody child tells him that no one born of a woman will be able to harm him. Thirdly, A crowned child holding a tree states that Macbeth will be safe until great Burnham Wood 
comes to Dunsinane Hill. Macbeth is relieved and feels secure because he knows that all men are born of women and force cannot possibly move. Macbeth also asks whether Banquo's sons will ever reign Scotland, to which the witches conjure a procession of eight crowned kings, all similar in appearance to Banquo, and the last carrying a mirror that reflects even more kings. Macbeth realizes that these are all Banquo's descendants, having acquired kingship in numerous countries. After the witches perform a mad dance and leave, Lennox enters and tells Macbeth that Macduff has fled to England. Macbeth orders Macduff's castle to be seized and, most cruelly, sends murderers to slaughter Macduff as well as Macduff's wife and children. Although Macduff is no longer in the castle, everyone in Macduff's castle is put to death, including Lady Macduff and their young son. Lady Macbeth becomes racked with guilt from the crimes that she and her husband have committed. At night, a doctor and an orderly discuss Lady Macbeth's strange habit of sleepwalking. Suddenly, Lady Macbeth enters in a trance with a candle in her hand. Bemoaning the murders of Duncan, Lady Macduff, and Banquo, she tries to wash imaginary bloodstains from her hands, all the while speaking of the terrible things she knows she pressed her husband to do. She leaves and the doctor and gentlewoman marvel at her descent into madness. When news of his family's execution reaches him, Macduff is stricken with grief and vows revenge. Prince Malcolm, Duncan's son, has succeeded in raising an army in England, and Macduff joins him as he rides to Scotland to challenge Macbeth's forces. The invasion has the support of the Scottish nobles, who are appalled and frightened by Macbeth's tyrannical and murderous behavior. Malcolm leads an army, along with Macduff, against Dunsinane Castle. While encamped in Burnham Wood, the soldiers are ordered to cut down and carry tree branches to camouflage their numbers. Before Macbeth's opponents arrive, he receives news that Lady Macbeth has killed herself, causing him to sink into a deep and pessimistic despair and deliver his tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow soliloquy. Though he reflects on the brevity and meaninglessness of life, he nevertheless awaits the English and fortifies Dunsinane. He is certain that the witch's prophecies guarantee his invincibility, but is struck with fear when he learns that the English army is advancing on Dunsinane, shielded with boughs cut from Burnham Wood, in, app in apparent fulfillment in one of the prophecies. A battle culminates in Macduff's confrontation with Macbeth, while the English forces overwhelm his army and castle. Macbeth boasts that he has no reason to fear Macduff, for he cannot be killed by any man born of a woman. Macduff declares that he was untimely ripped from his mother's womb and is not of woman born, fulfilling the second prophecy. Macbeth realizes too late that he has misinterpreted the witch's words. Though he realizes that he is doomed, and despite Macduff urging him to yield, he is unwilling to surrender and continues fighting. Macduff kills and beheads him, thus fulfilling the remaining prophecy. Macduff carries Macbeth's head on stage, and Malcolm discusses how order has been restored. The last reference to Lady Macbeth, however, reveals, "'Tis thought by self and violent hands, took off her life, but the method of her suicide is undisclosed.'"
Now the King of Scotland declares his benevolent intentions for the country and invites all to see him crowned. The, the End, end. So now, why don't we discuss the parts we liked and the parts that maybe could use some more improvement? I mean, it is Shakespeare. There's a lot of room for improvement. <laughs> um, so we we gave the full synopsis of, of the play Macbeth, but I just want to I want to circle back if I can. <laughs> um, the story of Macbeth in this particular production was abbreviated and told by one person, one person only being Alan Cumming in a psychiatric hospital. Yes. Now there is one moment where the orderly and the, the doctor. doctor, those are actually two separate actors that not only start the show, but then they have a couple of lines in the middle when they are commenting on Lady Macbeth. Yes. Yes. But the, I will say that the, the abbreviated version of this, it's still the actual lines from the play. They just cut a lot of things out, but it still makes sense. But Yes, but that, it more sounds like mad ramblings. But it's still that same story that we just recapped yes. uh, over it, which is fantastic considering, well, all things considered, I guess, you know, uh, a one-man show of Macbeth. Yeah. And in the style it's done. So I, I'm going to start by saying I absolutely was blown away by the show. Um, and I'd also add that it was truly chilling. Truly oh, yeah. chilling. First of all, I don't like I don't like hospitals to begin with. You know, I'm not I, not the people that work in hospitals. I just don't like hospitals. But you add on to that, I don't like asylums or psychiatric hospitals and that's exactly where this took place in that terrifying ethos of like the dark the dingy the whole it's that 1930s asylum yeah exactly film um so i really thought that was a really brilliant imagining reimagining of the classic tale like who would have i want to know who came up with the idea of a one-man show set in an asylum <clears throat> alan cumming that's who which i also <laughs> that leads me to my next point which i thought the fact that it was told you know it's a scottish play and it was told by a Scotsman made it even better. I mean, just, oh. Well, I don't know why. Just hearing those words in a Scottish dialect by a true Scotsman, I was like, oh, this is mm, mm -hmm. everything. It was it was quite beautiful, and I enjoyed every moment of it. Um, and I definitely it, think that it brought a little bit more meat to my understanding of Macbeth, because I have seen quite a number of scenes, quite a number of productions of Macbeth. But mm -hmm. hearing it, from a Scotsman made it that much more meatier and made the story mean that much more, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. Um, because, you know, in order to really understand Scottish culture, you either, I mean, you got to be there. Right. You know? And what I loved also is there was the classic tale of Macbeth being told, but there was also another story being told, 
Which is why we were set in the asylum. You know, the fact they opened the pa- that paper bag up and there was a blanket and a teddy bear and things. And you were like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. So it was a, 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 a recycling of the text of Macbeth to communicate a different story. Yeah, and I think that that story was something of, you know, at the heart of what Macbeth is about, which is about power, corruption, and grief. Yeah, and it was just so haunting, so haunting. The more things that got revealed in the room and through the story, I was like, what? Are we still talking about, like, boil, boil, toil, and trouble? Like, this is not the same play that I read in the 11th grade. Like, what are we... This is incredibly dark and disturbing, you know. So, should we break it down? Yeah, let's break it down. Boom, chicka, boom, chicka, boom, boom, boom. Lucy Lockett lost... Her locket. No, no Bob's Burgers, Rudy, Pop and Lock. Okay. It's a. It's That's a from the last episode. Half size Rudy, not regular size Rudy. I believe you. We're rewatching Bob's Burgers, so I believe you. But let's start with the set, shall we? Yeah. So the set was very much kind of a horror movie feeling. Now that I think about it, I wouldn't put it in the '30s. I would actually put it put it in the '70s. In the 70s horror genre. Yes. It was dark and chilling and dirty and dingy and but frightening. The, the and as- the colors that were there, like that green, but it was dark green. Well, no, it was that mint. See, it was that mint green, but with the lighting. It was that it came off dark. And then everything just had that. that Unclean. That, yeah, but it was supposed to be clean for a hospital and rusted and just it had the clawfoot tub I now, was say, the tub was really uncomfortable here's the thing it had the look of having been created in the 30s and sat uncleaned until the 70s yeah it was neglected like that, yeah that kind of feel um the fact i mean the tub was used yeah that whole scene i think i stood up in my chair Like, well, stood up from my chair because I was so anxious. Yeah, we were in the back row. And I just remember, like, leaning in a little bit, but I was, like, fidgety. And I was like, oh, because he's in the water bathing. But then he would, like, go under the water for long periods of time. And I was like. And you're like, that's too long to be under. That's too long to be under. Is he going to come up? (sighs) It was so... Uh, if we're not communicating uncomfort right now, like I wish you, we well, needed, we should have been like doing this as a, a live recording mm-hmm. on some streaming platform like Twitch or UTwitface or whatever no, kids no, are no. using these days. <laughs> but well, and the other thing with it is, he wasn't miked. He was not miked. Yeah, no. In the true I was like, Shakespeare fashion. I was like, yes, he was, and no, he, he was, was not, not miked. Yet we could hear from the back row. When he did have the intimate moments, I think he spoke into a mic. If he did, I don't remember it. Because it was multimedia, remember? Oh, that's right. So that's I think right. he, there were mics planted around and he would find them. And speak into and them. And speak into them. But even when he spoke softly with, like, he, he had that classic stage voice yeah. that you expect from Shakespeare. And then the fact that the orderly's office was upstairs was really nerve-wracking because it, 
It was the fact that the others had to descend into the room. Yeah, and they, they had the to illusion, carry him down the well, stairs it, to descend into It gave into that illusion of, yeah, of descending into madness, that the madness existed down below and that everyone could look down and watch, mm-hmm. you know. So that set was just chef's kiss. <laughs> um, let's go on to the costumes, or what co- little costumes there were in this case. Um, I thought they were awesome. Awesome. <laughs> they were ragged and dirty and dingy. Mm-hmm. Like he shows up all bloodied and ripped, but then when he has to get into those orderly clothes, the or, scrubs. Oh yeah, there's the just these gray and off white, but they're dirty. They're supposed to be clean, but they're like they're still dirty. And I'm like, you're in a hospital. Hospitals are clean places. Why is this not clean? Like, mm-hmm. oh. Well, and um, the straight jacket. <sighs> oh. Ugh. Uh. I'm not okay with this. Yeah, it. Ooh, that one got me. And then, but but the fact that there was so much dirtiness in the costumes and clothing down below, but then the people up above, the doctor and the orderly, they were so clean and they were so crisp and perfect. Stark. Yeah. Stark white. And uh, clear separation. Clear. The bloody clothes in the bag were really shocking as they were pulled out. Because mm-hmm. at first you're like, oh, yeah, okay, they must be his. The thing is, is he comes in with the bag and you think they're his. Because mm-hmm. if I remember right, he comes in in the straight jacket. Yes. but and, and, and he's got the bag, and so you think that those are his items. But then as they pull those items out, you realize there's no way they fit them. Fit him when they pull out the child's te- the pajamas and then the teddy bear. You're like, what in the good hell happened? Right, because it, it's almost like those were items in the bag to trigger him to as some sort of either therapy or... Or he was caught doing something, and it's like, why did they let him keep these? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and anything's possible in this weird world. And I think that leads us to the lighting, which, it holy was, cow, amazing. It was both intimate and deepening and deafening. Um, it was isolating. It, oh, it was beautiful. The flickering lights that only heighten the tension and suspense. I hate flickering lights. I hate uh-huh. them like that. Because the thing is, they're not... I mean, I'm sure they were up above like actual instruments, but there was a lot of these fluorescent lights that were there, or the x-ray lights, and they would flicker in that. And I'm like, I just I hate this. Mm-hmm. In real life, that makes me tense. On a stage, it just makes me tense. And it makes me even more tense on the stage, because I'm like, you intentionally did that crap. Yeah, you made that That's happen. That's supposed to happen. That's not an accident. That's not me like looking at someone being like, stop the show and fix that bulb. Fix that wiring. No, that's intentional. I'm like, oh my God, this is so uncomfortable. I just want solid lines and pretty lines and solid lighting. <laughs> and why is that you moving? You ain't gonna get it. No. Um, I remember the grays and the whites and the greens and that hospital mint green just... Everywhere. I think even there's less nof- than mint, it was seafoam. There, yeah, there's nothing calming about that color. Nothing. I don't look at that color and be like, oh my god, I'm just... I know I was shot, but I am just so relaxed right now. <laughs> yes. No, I've never seen that color. If anything, that color makes me be like, <gasps> paper bag. <gasps> uh, see, for me, it's that, that Pepto-Bismol pink color in hospitals. I've that's... never seen Pepto-Bismol pink in hospitals. Oh, well, that's because you've never had to go to the bathroom in a hospital. Or a women's bathroom, at least. Okay, the women's bathroom, that's fair. I mean, yeah, I was like, I've, uh, correction, I've had a brain surgery. Yes, I have gone to the bathroom in a hospital. <laughs> They're yellow. 
<laughs> anyway, we're getting off topic a little. I mean, we are talking colors and we are talking lights, but yeah. So I just remember the green everywhere, and and the lights only emphasized it. Um, it was like looking through a dirty lens and everything. Uh-huh. And I want to say I think that's a a combination of the lighting and the and hazers mm-hmm. um, that really just made that come out. I loved the dark moments. Um, they were truly frightening. Um, and Alan Cumming just looked larger than life and devilish. These brilliant use of shadows, these intimate moments where Alan Cumming could just look out over the audience. And because his lighting effect had these, made these giant circles around his eyes. And he, I mean, he looks soulless, mm-hmm. you know? Or like I said, that tub moment where he's gripping the sides of the tub and his chin is dangling in the water and he's just looking right out at the audience. And you're like, this. Oh, yeah. We saw every part of him. No, he was fully nude. And that's the thing. It's usually like nudity. There's all this movement. And we're trying to get him covered up. And he was just sitting there and penetrating you with his eyes and delivering these lines. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not really looking at your naked body. I feel more like, why are you looking at me? It's that awkward. Like, normally it'd be awkward that, like, we're staring at naked people and giggle, giggle. But, like... You know when someone locks eyes with you and makes it more awkward, but it's not as awkward for them, it's more awkward for you? Uh-huh. Even though they're the awkward person? Uh-huh. That's what it was. Yeah. And it was like, oh, and he's delivering these creepy lines too, and you're like, okay, uh-huh. Mr. Cumming, did you have a B12 shot today? <laughs> right. It was frightening. Right. Well, and I think, honestly, that drives us into the direction. And one thing I'd like to say with the direction... Sorry, it- can someone say that would direct us? into the direction. <laughs> I had that one coming. Alan coming. Uh, coming. <laughs> you had that Alan coming? Oh my gosh. Okay, well, so my point direction. is with direction, I think that there was a clear story that the director was trying to tell that wasn't Macbeth. They were using the story of Macbeth to tell the story that's what I mean. Yeah, that's want. what I meant by like. There's a layer upon a layer. Like there's yes, a story on a story. Yes, but I think we should talk about what we think that story was. Well, what do you think it was? I think it was a story about a man who is a pedophile. I remember you telling me who this. either hurt or killed either the child or the mother. And he was somehow related to the child and was descending into madness because when he'd have those moments of what felt like clarity, they were usually when he was um, Banquo or uh, Lady Macbeth, and they were very feminized in the vocalings um, and asking for mercy and kind of having realizations. But then the descent into madness, the craziness, the... The parts where we were getting Macbeth and the witches and the killings and all that other stuff um, was him as a coping mechanism trying to separate himself from what he did. So that's what I think the story was. I think he was a family annihilator. It could be that too. Yeah. It was just madness because Macbeth was a family annihilator. Yeah, just not his own. Right. I mean, he did end up... You know. His wife killed himself, but but Macbeth went after Banquo and his whole line. It wasn't successful, but then he went after Macduff. 
He went to go annihilate Macduff's entire family. Mm-hmm. So I think he was a family annihilator. I could see that too. And they were trying to figure out why. And if if the bag of bloody clothing and that was a form of therapy and to trigger something, it was to figure out why he, he did, did this or how he knew them, perhaps. Yeah. Well, because, you know, family annihilators are usually someone in the family. Usually, but I don't think he was in the family. I think he was known to the family. But anyway. Yeah, we could go back and forth on the interpretation, but, that of, but that's what makes it brilliant. See, that's the thing is, is, is the, the direction put that story on a story and it, was, it made it haunting and thrilling and truly frightening. Mm-hmm. And it preyed on all of your fears. Mm-hmm. It, this, this, this did this by using one of the darkest and most famous pieces of theater to do, I mean, at least it preyed on my fears. I, I have a fear of hospitals, particularly psychiatric hospitals, and all of the thing, elements that involved it, you know, being restrained, uh, having water and restraints in the same area, things like that. Like, this, this truly preyed on all those fears. And I was like, I don't understand why this is frightening me so much because I've, I know the story oh so well, but why is this so frightening? And the director just kind of went, this isn't frightening enough. What can we add that may really bring out this moment, you know? Yeah. Oh, we can have someone, we can have them looking at an x-ray. We can use x-ray uh, lights. X-ray you know, X-ray reading? board lights, yeah. X-ray yeah. reading lights to help illuminate him and he could have a moment against, you know, I mean, it was... It was intense. Yeah. Um, I, you know, we've talked a lot about the bag of bloody clothes. We talked about the descent into the madness and everything like that. I like that these items that they were introduced and left up to interpretation. Mm-hmm. They didn't, like, they, they introduced this stuff, but we didn't, like, it wasn't... They didn't explain what they were introducing. No, he, didn't, he never named those items in the bag in relation to the play. Mm-hmm. He was saying these lines, but then touching these items in the bag and it was like well wh- what do these have to do with it it's like no that's your job to figure out right and that because we, he's mad exactly and that's that's one of those things that really gets me that i like about scary stories set in asylums because i think that there's nothing scarier than the human brain i think that's fair yeah because the things that well one humans come up with it humans do it like just the way the human brain works nothing will scare you more than your own mind Exactly. Um, I thought that it was that it really used an interesting vessel, like you said, to communicate just how insane the story of Macbeth is. Mm-hmm. And Macbeth really is just an insane story, if you think about it. One guy gets told, hey, you know what, I think you're going to be king. And he follows down that path, and he kills and does horrible things. In the name of this ambition, which... Which, like, I, when we say it like that, it's like, well, but that's not so unbelievable. And it's like, well... All you had to do was not do it. All you had to do was say no, and Macbeth never, the play never exists. Yeah. It's a snowball effect. It's, it's, it's a total snowball effect. And so it's just such insanity. It's such insanity. Um, and I think that the last thing I'll say about direction is that it utilized such a great talent as coming to bring forth this incredible multiple persons version yeah. That, like I said, that was just truly scary. Look up the ads for this. I think the only really ad that's available now is the one that was when it played in Scotland. But it is. Yeah. With the closed circuit TV and that, it is very disturbing. And, then, and I remember seeing it and being like, yep, gonna go see it. <laughs> it was, and, and it was worth it.
let's now talk about the impact the show's had on the theater and its history. So starting with theatrical impact, I, 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 I only have one, at least for me, which is this was just a brilliant reimagining of a classic show. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I don't know how many times someone has used the text of Shakespeare to tell a different story but at that least wasn't Shakespeare in a one-man, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's ever happened. Um, but definitely, I think this was the first, if not the only, to do it as a one-man show, yeah. Uh, particularly on Broadway. So yeah. That's the only theatrical impact I could come up with. But for me, the thing that I think that's the impactfulness about that is it showed people that it can be done and gave us a new way to use Shakespeare, to tell stories. Yeah, considering Shakespeare is going on 500 years old. Yeah, it, um, it showed us that, it, look, we can still use this to tell multi-layered stories. He's not taught, his work is not tired and old. It can continue to be reinvented, reused, recycled. There's, we are not done. We've not exasperated all the interpretations of these works yet. Which I think is what just tells of their brilliance. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go and move us on to societal impact. Um, I think one of the biggest ones for me, or I'll go with two, is um, it thrilled and scared audiences and it preyed on their deepest fears. Yeah. Which... You, theater doesn't normally dance in this realm. It doesn't normally dance in the scaring, thrilling, or preying on your fears. Stephen Sondheim did it once with Sweeney Todd. So there's a whole theater genre called Grand Guignol Theater. Ah, uh, Grand Guignol. That focuses on the bloody and the and the yes. thrill. Um, and so this this show can be a gateway drug into that world. Yes, but that this world does not. Exists it's, on Broadway. And it's not a mainstream one. It's macabre. You've got it, to... You have put, to find I'm it. I'm going to put a warning out there. Like, when you go down that rabbit hole, when you Google search it, when you look into it, be very careful because it is not like Halloween, ooh, fake blood, spurts, spurts. Like, these people go big. Um, it is... There's disturbing stuff involved in this form of theater. Um, it dates back play, to the Victorian was, times. Yeah, this play, this version of Macbeth is definitely like Sunday school version of what Greg and Young Theater could be. They they really, there's a no holds bar in this form of theater. It's big on gore and torture and murder and things like that. But that's that's the style of theater, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but Broadway particularly doesn't usually strive to scare or thrill an audience or prey on their fears. And like I said, we've had a couple of shows in the past like Sweeney Todd. Um, or I'm trying to think of another show that might scare an audience. Um, I don't think Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. No. Um... But, you know, it, it, that's the thing is we're racking our brain and it's kind of hard to... Wait until dark, but that's, that's not That's thrilling. Really, yeah, that's thrilling. You know, and so... But this particular production was... Yeah. Uh, 1984. Oh, 1984. Yeah. That would be the next show that would go on to disturb me deeply. And we'll get to that in a future episode. And I will say it did bring awareness in an odd sort of way to mental health and like a, in an skewed way. Because, I mean, at this time, mental health was not really a, an atopic conversation thing. Um, and I think... But it was about to really start to become mainstream topic conversation. And to see someone 
as disturbing as Alan Cumming in his character in the show. And we can put together that he did something horrible. But why isn't he? Why why didn't this play happen in jail? Why is it in an insane asylum? Made you start to go. Well, what is his? What is the mental issue? And then you start to go do like what we did when we left and we went and ate and we started discussing our theories and our ideas. Suddenly, mental health does come up in the conversation, and then you start to talk about it, and you might go down uh, uh, a tangent, and it leads you. I mean, like I said, in an odd skewed way it kind of made people a little bit more aware of mental health because it started and the importance a of taking care of it right on a very i mean it's a very skewed minimal societal impact this was not definitely a show meant to be like hey mental health but i think it, it you you couldn't see it or talk about it without talking about you know alan cummings excuse me yeah alan cummings mental health yeah. So, is the show still relevant? I mean, listen, it's Macbeth. Macbeth is always relevant. Well, but here's my thing. We just had a revival of Macbeth. So, I would have to say no, actually. Um, relevant, and just to remind our audience, relevant in terms of... Broadway. Playing on Broadway this way. Yeah, and this version... So, I would say no, because we just had the re- uh, revival of Macbeth. And this version is truly a unique version of the show. So, unless it was being recreated in the same manner... I really would have to say no. And I don't know if I could see it with anyone other than Alan Cumming. Oh, there's another number of actors I think that could also play the role well. Um, But it's making sure that it's, I think it's like lightning in a bottle, like Peter and the Starcatcher, where it's like, it's got to be done. Just right. Everything has to click or you're, 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 it's like a. um, You're chasing the sunset. No, it's like the sequel. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's just not as good as the original. Um. Though the play Macbeth is always relevant on on all levels, you know, community all the way up to Broadway, and I think the Great White Way is calling for another revival of the show just yet. You know, give it another couple of years. So that's at least that's my opinion. promised we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing this show we had the good fortune of seeing the show once in 2013 and because it only ran for it was a a, a limited engagement it was a limited engagement we do not want to give the illusion that it flopped it was a limited engagement yes um we've shared most of our stories I mean, being completely absorbed in the show and just being thrilled and frightened. Um, the bloody I, clothes and bear was shocking. I remember it was raining when we went into the kiss and cry line. Yes. And it just felt right. Yes. And I felt cold, even though it was the middle of summer in New York City. My mom, my mom was with us. And um, I was like, Ma, are you sure you want to see the show? And she's like, no, yeah, I think it'll be great. You're like, I love Alan Cumming. And I was like, okay, like, Yahoo! And even she was like, oh my god, that was... And I was like, yeah, well, here we are. Mm-hmm. Um, watching Alan coming just spiral the madness was amazing. Well, and to see his, his demeanor after the show, it's got to take a lot of emotional, like... Uh, what's the word I want? Like, It just takes a lot of an actor to be able to do that, and then 
you go know, out into the world. Exactly. I will say, just side note, if you ever want a good book, Alan Cummings' auto or his biography, which I can't remember the title right now, but I will share it on our social media, as well as if you become a patron with our scripted series. Um, but his biography is absolutely fantastic. I really just love it. Um, and speaking of him, just meeting him afterwards was amazing. He's such a kind human. Yeah. He was so... And I thought, he's not going to stop because it's raining. And he well, was, that... And he just gave a... You know, that... The amount of life that he breathed into his performance um, was just... You know, that takes so much out of you as a person. And so for him to still come out and sign autographs and talk to the people was just amazing. That's not something that you should ever expect from someone. And he did it. And I just, I have mad respect for that. Yeah. He, he was just nice making jokes and I'm so glad that we got to meet him. A side note, the name of the book, by the way, is Not My Father's Son by Alan Cumming. Ah. Yes. So, theater's back and we hope you can join us very, very soon. You'll be able to catch Macbeth at a theater near you, but not on Broadway because it just closed. <laughs> We also want to remind you that you can now become a member, uh, a producer, a patron of the show by getting your backstage pass. Information about our backstage pass can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your mask on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by Lovira, Maxim Kornishev, John Bartman, Jesse Spillane, and Billy Murray. Yeah.